All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. This is a special episode because it is the kickoff episode of season six, and I'm very excited to be joined by my co-host for this season, Guart. I mean, Dan. <laughs> Dan Robinson of Paradigm. Yeah, thanks for Dan, having welcome me. welcome. I almost revealed my secret identity there. <laughs> almost, almost. I think we salvaged it. I think we salvaged it. So this will be a really fun season. I'm excited to have you joining me because we are going to be going deep on the past, present, and future of DEXs. And for those of you who have tuned in to the show before, just to give you a little bit of a preview of what you can expect for this episode, Dan and I are going to go in and kind of give you an overview of some of the themes and the agenda that we're going to be exploring this season. Um, so we're going to be talking about that this episode. Throughout the course of the season, we're going to be doing seven interviews with various leaders from the DEX space, and then we're going to do a wrap-up episode uh, to just kind of give you our thoughts. Um, so... To kick things off, before we even get into the themes, Dan, I want to just leave this one open to you because you've been involved, very involved with Uniswap since the early days of the protocol and have kind of seen it through many different iterations. So can you kind of walk us through either chronologically or by different design decisions or however you think about it, in kind of Uniswap day one, where it found product market fit and just how it's evolved over the years and its successive iterations? Yeah. And first, I, I want to say thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited, looking forward to this season. Um, Thank you. But yeah, I think that's a great place to start because I was one of, you know, a good number of people who was lucky enough to be sniped by um, Hayden early on in the, in, uh, the pre-Uniswap V1 days with starting to think about, um, about Uniswap when he, when he was. So I met him in the spring of 2018 when he'd been working on Uniswap for a little while. And um Almost, you know, on the first day, the first I'd ever heard about AMMs and um, uh, in particular the constant product market maker. And I was immediately kind of sniped by by the implications and and thinking about it. Particularly, I remember just not believing on the first day. It's like, oh, if if the price goes up and um, uh, then you then you sell at a loss and then the price goes back down and you sell at a loss. And in fact, but you've, you've made no, you've lost no money. Like that's, it's, I, it took a while with a spreadsheet after that first day for me, even just to become comfortable with that. And of course that, that turns out to be, as we'll talk about it, a fairly profound question in, um, in AMM design, but it was, it was one of the first things that got me uh, captured by it. But also I think um, as were many people early on with Hayden himself and with the idea for Uniswap, not just as a, as you know, uh, uh, as a DEX, but as a as a paradigmatic example of what a um, an on chain application could be. And so, some of the things that really fascinated me about it early on was he, had, he from the beginning, I think, had this vision of it as a completely non upgradable, um, uh, non custodial, decentralized public good that anybody on Ethereum could access. And I think holding to that principle since then has just been um, really important and and as a north star for. Um, for Uniswap, and it's one of the reasons why so many people, including me, got really excited about it. Is I think, ah, this is like really is after a few years of seeing a lot of different kinds of things tried on Ethereum. This is the kind of thing that's like really uniquely enabled by um, by technology like this. 
Yeah. So uh, my, my memory of Uniswap in the beginning, where it originally found product market fit and where it really started to garner some excitement outside of just uh, sort of nerd sniping was you actually had very good execution for a sort of a long tail of crypto assets. So you would still get better execution on a centralized exchange like Binance or Coinbase. But this was around the period of time where tokens were starting to go live again. ICOs weren't exactly a dirty word. And I actually remember talking to, I don't want out, he's, he's also a, a paradigm guy about, hey, there's actually this, this thing called Uniswap and what you can get on execution here is better than some of the centralized exchanges. And what, what, what also strikes me about the early design of Uniswap is that it's really simple. It was just very, very simple. Now, there are some drawbacks to the simplicity, but it feels like that was intentional from the early, am, am I right about where it sort of found product market fit in the early days and was simplicity a part of the design choice? Yeah. So in, in addition to that security principle and the decentralization that I was talking about as a, as a core design choice, I do think simplicity was an essential part of what made early early Uniswap work and, and part of Hayden's approach to, to designing it. Um, and yeah, I think not, not just simple in the protocol, which again, yeah, the incredibly short, you know, 150 line smart contract and Uniswap v1, um, but also also simplicity in the interface. And I think it, it, it sort of uh, uh, permeated the whole idea of, okay, this should actually be pretty easy to go on and do this. And I think if you tried using like, you know, um, some of the more sophisticated uh, decentralized exchange interfaces at the time, they were designed to look like centralized exchange. Um, more, more pro interfaces. And I think if uh, the early Uniswap interface tended to look more like, um, well, it looked, it looked like Coinbase, like Coinbase consumer in some ways, the experience was going yeah. on and be able to buy, just put in a number and you see another number. But that interface, of course, has kind of come, that paradigm has come to kind of dominate um, uh, decentralized exchange interfaces and, and all kinds of interfaces in DeFi, especially um, because it's so simple. And yeah, I agree. Uniswap v1, incredibly simple. Uniswap v2, in some ways, even simpler. Um, and in some ways, you know, stupid started building on the complexity. And then I think with with V three and V four, you start saying, okay, like how how you know fast can we actually uh, uh, hit the hit the gas pedal in terms of of how much how much complexity we can handle here? Yeah, can you walk us through almost take us through? So V one has launched; it's a success here. And we say, okay, great. We want to stay to this core to these design decisions of being non upgradable smart contracts, and we wanted to still be non custodial. What were some of the big design choices that you made for? V2 that was different from V1? I mean, if you go from like kind of V2 to V3, because I think concentrated liquidity is something that will stick in people's minds is this was a really different design choice. Yeah. So I was tangentially involved in in helping Hayden with Uniswap V1 and really mostly in um, helping him with one like gas optimization decision in the in the code. But I really got involved in Uniswap research, I'd say, after Paradigm invested, um, after I joined uh, uh, in um, in November and then, and then Paradigm and then Paradigm invested in, or I, I joined in January, 2019. And then, um, we invested in Uniswap about a month after that. And I, I started getting really, um, uh, deep into, into helping you hit him with future versions. And I think the, the key things there, we were, we were looking at, okay, like what are the, what are the things that are missing from this? What's the most urgent things to, to deal with? And for some reason, I think we landed on, um, one was ERC 20 pairs, um, so the ability to trade, for example, stable coins against stable coins or trade assets against stable coins. And, um, and that led to, to the big change in Uniswap v2, um, uh, allowing arbitrary ERC-20 pairs. And then another was people were starting to use Uniswap as an oracle, the price on Uniswap as an oracle, but it was, it was really an insecure way to do that. Mm. And 
it seemed unfortunate that there wasn't like a nice decentralized Oracle the way that Uniswap had provided a decentralized uh, exchange. Um, and so we, so that was the other uh, feature. And I think I was, that's probably the feature I was most involved with in helping in helping on V2 and ended up um, uh, writing the, the white, uh, uh, writing the white paper for that with, with Hayden and Noah. The funny thing is, and Hayden disagrees with me on this, but I sort of think the, that, so V2 as an upgrade in terms of the features it added were actually basically failures. I think, V2 actually didn't, the, the core goals of those features um, weren't actually, didn't actually end up working. Um, V2 wasn't, wasn't the right solution to them. Um, and until we got to V3, it actually wasn't, you weren't really able to do the things that, that I would have expected V2 would have enabled. And so um, I, I tweeted about this recently, again, Hayden disagrees, but um, uh, if you take EOC20, EOC20 pairs, right? Like a big part of that is the ability to trade stable coins um, right. uh, against each other. And uh, the interesting thing is the it actually does not make sense to trade stable coins with a constant product curve because of capital efficiency because the, the you're providing uh, uh, liquidity at prices going from like zero to infinity when in fact with stable coins they uh, stable pairs you really want to concentrate liquidity closely around the price of one but I think we hadn't really I think maybe when we were at least originally working on V2 we we're thinking okay this, this would still maybe be useful for these but um, but when we started working on V3. Uh, I, that that was what actually motivated. Sorry, that, that skipping ahead a little bit, but starting working on V three, thinking, oh, actually, this is the, this is before Uniswap V two start uh, launched, um, was like, oh, actually, maybe this is not going to work. And then indeed, with V two, stable stable pairs just never really made sense on it. The other thing that happened in the meantime was Curve launched, and that showed that actually a, a concentrated liquidity um, uh, pool for stable coins makes a lot more sense. The other reason is the Oracle, and I think decentralized price Oracle was is a really cool concept, but in practice, in order to use it in V two, you actually had to call this. You basically had to had to if you wanted to get the time weighted average price over a period, the TWAP price, you had to call it at the mm -hmm. beginning of a period and again at the end. And so, as it was designed in V two, it was actually really um, uh, it was kind of hard to use. And so, within the first year after it launched, you know, between when V two launched and when V V three launched, um, I think very rarely did people even use this oracle. So we added this whole feature, and it, it didn't get very much usage until at least V three launched. All right, that's. Super interesting tidbit of history. So you have big ideas for V2, ERC-20 pairs, and this decentralized Oracle. By the way, Oracle Oracle's also now, I feel like, are a hot topic in, in DeFi as well. But um, And at the same time, so some of these products maybe weren't quite as successful. Uh, maybe Hayden would say something different, but in your mind, it wasn't super successful. At the same time, well, what, to, make, to, make, to make Hayden's case, to be clear, I think he's right about this. The big change in V2 was a big architectural change to how the contracts are structured. It made it a lot easier to actually interact with. And so there were these necessary rewriting it in Solidity from Viper, fixing a few like minor bugs in it. I think there was, there was a lot that made it much easier to build on top of. And those those things, rather than the, than the sort of top of line um, feature changes, were really, I think, helped kick off uh, uh, V2's success. Okay. So, and that stuff is, I mean, that's critically important. Not as sexy as, uh, you know, decentralized oracles, but extremely important, obviously, to the user experience. So, you know, you looked at, you looked at some of these features, say, okay, maybe some of these worked, maybe some didn't quite so well, but at the same time you saw Curve and then maybe somewhere there, maybe in your mind or the Uniswap team's mind started to say, okay, maybe something like um, concentrated liquidity makes sense. And now it's sort of been in vogue to question whether or not LPing really makes sense and how profitable is it. We've got measures like impermanent loss and LVR, which we're going to get into. How, was that in people's minds at the time? Were people questioning that 
the idea that this didn't really make sense from a maker perspective or uh, how much was that in the design decision? Yeah. So impermanent loss was always, I mean, from, from the very beginning and literally from the first day I was um, looking at Uniswap, we started, we were wrestling with this problem. Um, and it came to the conclusion fairly early on, which I mostly still believe that that impermanent loss is a is in a problem that's kind of inherent to market making. Then you can chip away at some of the edges of it, but um, but the core idea that in order to market make, you have to actually take some some price risk on on the price moving against you when you're when you're trading these things. That is actually like core to the idea of market making. That was that was something that uh, was uh, a. a conclusion we came to fairly early on and led us with v2 and v3 you know a lot of people were like oh are you going to solve impermanent loss and our at our approach like i think no like I, I don't think that's that it is solvable i think it are, there are things that are very close to impermanent loss that it mitigates and so one of those things with concentrated liquidity which you can talk about is that um you you don't have to hold as much inventory in the token as you would if you're providing liquidity um on v2 right you don't have to hold as much of the token to provide the same amount of liquidity at a nearby price and so that reduces your price risk in some sense but i think we did we didn't really think of impermanent loss as something that we could really solve so really when, when we were driven by the by the upgrades and i think v3 was a much clearer case where we identified okay capital efficiency is this is this serious problem and i, I traced that back to a conversation i had in september 2019 um with martin Koppelman from from gnosis where he was pointing out that um actually if 25 percent of the assets in a uniswap v2 pool or Uniswap v1 pool i think it was at the time uh are not touched if the price unless the price moves by more than a factor of four in either direction and so most of the time like unless the price is just moving like like crazy you just don't need these assets in there and so that kind of like woke us up uh, and then later when when curve launched um woke us up to this fact of okay like you actually have a huge potential improvement if you if you can solve this capital efficiency problem um but we wanted to solve it in this way where it was where it was neutral to the strategy that was actually being done and so that that gets us to the to the this thinking about okay like are lps making money or are they losing money and in my view um, it's an important question, and it's one that I'm very curious about, and I don't think I'm the world expert on it. Um, but uh, it's an important question, what is currently happening with LPs, but that's primarily, uh, in some sense, uh, it's up to the LPs whether that happens. And the system is designed in order to be to reach some equilibrium. And it's possible right now that liquidity is overprovided. That there's that there's too much liquidity provided, so that actually there's not enough retail trading uh, fees split up across all of them to make them make money. I think on some pools, from what I've seen, the, the, the empirical evidence seems to say that there that in those cases liquidity is overprovided. It's a paradox to me that it is still provided because these seem like sophisticated parties. But um, uh, that that's that's what I that's that seems to be the case. But in my view, what matters is you're designing the system in order to try to preserve as much value for people in it as possible and in order to be as convenient as possible for them. And if people aren't making money, they can provide less liquidity um, and or, or liquidity can go up or down based on based on that. So the goal is to try to design this game and then allow people to play it. Yeah. So that kind of takes us to V3, where this concept of concentrated liquidity is introduced. And I'm assuming folks will have a basic knowledge of V3, but instead of providing liquidity across an infinite spectrum of prices, it's just you're, you're able to specify the range that you want to LP at. And one of the questions that I've, I've have you, Dan, is, you know, as much as you can reveal in, in the war room, so to speak, at the time, you know, at, at that time, I think there was a, a lot of the excitement around AMMs that I remember is everyone can be a market maker. Do you remember that as kind of yeah. an era of like anyone can can market make and the assumption that this was just going to be retail people just passively LPing and making a, a good profit. Um, did you think, obviously, concentrated liquidity, and we can in, get into why, provides a little, or it adds a little bit more onus of complexity onto the supply side. 
Um, so were you, were you already sort of thinking through like who ultimately is going to be on the maker side of the Uniswap protocol? And were you thinking about that or yeah? Yeah, Walk us I'll, I'll definitely say early on for at least the first year um, that I was thinking closely. So around like the year 2019, I was thinking closely about Uniswap. Um, I did kind of buy the idea that uh, passive liquidity really changes the game. And so I had this thought that, oh, you know, people are providing and, you know, not, not original to me, but people are um, providing passive liquidity. There's just so much more that can be provided if you if it's passive and not just professional market makers. So, in fact, like it, what if, you know, providing ETH USDC pools is kind of like buying the S&P 500 and people will just do it with with some of their of their money and then they'll actually just be earning fees, um, volatility, harvesting these these assets um, and that that could actually really outcompete um, the professionals. Uh, and I think, I still think in the long run, um, that that's, that that's possible in some, in some ways, I still think in the long run it's possible, but I think, you know, and I think in some sense it was almost, it was maybe true in 2019. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, these AMs started to take over in 2019 and 2020 is that actually it was a lot more effective to have, if you had so much, you unlocked so much extra capital from these, uh, things that you could, and it was certainly true in the long tail of tokens. And you mentioned before, yes, I, I think Uniswap really unlocked the ability to, to not have to hire professional market makers to, in order to have, if you create a token, boom, suddenly there's already a, a, a market for it and you can, and you can provide a market, market making for it. I think that's incredibly important for the long tail of tokens, but I think in the short tail with those, like with USDC, I think I, I underestimated the importance of the microstructure of just of um, uh, arbitrage flows and toxic versus non-toxic flows, which is something that I think a lot of people at the time were talking about. I thought it just wasn't important yet. And I think it, probably it wasn't. And in fact, the people who were who were most focused on um, on those things at the time did not end up building uh, uh, winning AMM and the people who were less focused on it did. So it may, maybe it was too early to worry about it. But I think they I think they were right. Um, and I think it is actually really important. And this is when we get into loss versus rebalancing. Once you've actually, once you uh, really zoom in on exactly what the issue is, the fact that passive passive liquidity could just be arbed, um, uh, could end up only receiving toxic flow and only being arbed is, is a threat to it in the long run. Yeah. And I want to just bookmark that answer because this idea of meeting the market where it's at in terms of product design is something that I think Uniswap has just done at least from an outsider's seat, just phenomenally well. Um, yeah, it, it, help, it helps I, to not be that smart. It helps to like not actually know that much <laughs> about market structures going, and you're learning it. Uh, you know, I was learning it alongside Hayden um, uh, and sort of from a very DeFi principles uh, first point of view, as opposed to coming in with a lot of preconceptions about what was going to be important. Well, that, I mean, that's very humble take, but I also, there were plenty of folks, right, who, I remember this in, in around 2019 or 2020, as people would point to, AMMs and the Uniswaps of the world and say, this is way too simple. It's never going to work. Ultimately, this is what professional traders want. They make up X percent of the volume in TradFi markets. Here are all the features that they're going to need. And they rolled these, these things out that were just way too ahead of their time. And um, whether or not that was intentional, it clearly worked out. And maybe that can transition us a little bit to V4. So V4 is the latest iteration of Uniswap, which feels a little bit more Again, I'll speak from my perspective as an outsider, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but it sort of marks a shift for me towards a little bit more of a platform model and a, a design decision that says, hey, maybe as Uniswap 
we don't actually know what the best design dex is. Like we kind of made these very specific decisions in V2. We made a very specific move towards concentrated liquidity in V3. But now the market is at a mature enough point where we want to create more flexibility for participants. So am I right or wrong there? Walk us through sort of the design principles of V4. I'd say actually, I, I think Uniswap has been a platform, has had this platform philosophy since the beginning and in different mm. ways. And I think V4 is absolutely an extension of that. But I think when you when you think about Uniswap V1 and V2, um, it's, it's, for one thing, it's, it's agnostic and permissionless as far as what, what, uh, assets and what pairs it supports, right? It's basically, it's, it says any, any pair of assets that you want to support, we, we, you can just spin up your own, uh, Uniswap DAX, right? Like there isn't any, uh, there aren't sort of rules. They, they don't make decisions on what kind of assets can be added and what can't. And I think that's, that's very important as, as a platform because it means, yeah, again, you're not, you're saying like, I'm, I'm not going to be opinionated about where this, where volume or where growth is going to come from. It's just going to be, you know, whatever users actually want to do. And I think that was, um, that was important. And we're going to try to pick as unopinionated a strategy as possible. And in some formalistic senses, I think the constant product market maker is as unopinionated a, a, uh, a rule as possible for, for making markets. Like if you know nothing about the underlying assets, um, and there, there, there are some reasons, you know, res- reasons to believe that that's, that that's the case. Um, and in general, I think we found that it worked for a lot of assets that were, that were traded at the time. Stable, stable pairs being like the big exception where, where it really failed. Um, but in general, I think it actually equips itself pretty well as a, as a market making strategy. And it's one that, that predates AMMs as far as, you know, the, the idea of market makers just running a rebalancing portfolio as a strategy um, is sort of is, a, is kind of a classic idea. Um, so, yeah, so I, again, I think it was trying to be as neutral and as, as platform-like as possible. And like, you know, when liquidity providers are coming in, like, here you go, like, you, we're just going to merge all of your liquidity together, right? We're not going to um, uh, run some like complicated, complex strategy with it. Again, it's basically you choose what to, what to provide to. Um, you, you, if you want to provide on one pair and not another, a lot of AMMs, I think, fell off a cliff because they tried to allow somebody like provide liquidity on a bunch of different assets or like they had governance making these decisions. It's like, no, we're just going to be a platform for that. All right. So then getting to V2, I, I'm sorry, to, to V3, um, I think V2 becomes more of a, uh, even more of a platform because it's okay. Like we are, you know, it's a, pla- we allow you to try it in any, in any pairs you want, but we are forcing you into this one strategy. And while it's kind of a very agnostic strategy, it's not one that probably any, any particular person usually wants to do. It's not what they would, what they would choose to do ideally. So we'll say, okay, let's allow you to provide a different, a different, um, uh, concentrations on different, uh, or in different price ranges. And, one thing about about that is, you know, when you look at what AMM design and AMM innovation looked like at the time, a lot of it was based around um, different shapes for for liquidity curves, right? Like, oh, we're going to do this curve, the constant, you know, power summer, the constant, whatever's the thing, right? And it's like, okay, well, what is like the the er design for all of these? And it's like, okay, it's one we will allow you to provide what at literally whatever. Um, uh, liquidity concentration you want at any L prices, you can construct from that, and I have a blog post about how to do this, construct from that, uh, from any arbitrary reserves curve that you want, the right Uniswap V3 pattern to provide, uh, provide liquidity in. And so it becomes a platform for DEX innovation itself. And then I think V4 takes it one more step, which is, okay, like, where's the innovation coming now? I think it's largely coming from these features that involve doing something before every trade or doing something, um, uh, changing the fees on in response to, to, to every trade. Um, and I think, you know, some examples are, we, we, we can talk about like, some of those, but like trying to do auction, various kinds of auctions for to, to capture um, uh, MEV or trying to change the fees in response to volatility or in response to other kinds of signals. Um, and all these things require a little more innovation, a little more flexibility than Uniswap V3 provided as a platform. And that's what V4 uh, is there for. One of the things is it also enables um, the kind of features we were adding manually in V2, which is like uh, oracles, right? Like you can actually add, an, add arbitrary price oracles in V4 to whatever pools you want. 
Um, since that wasn't possible in V2, we said, okay, we're just going to add one to every pool. But now we actually took that out because you don't you don't need it built into the thing anymore. So it's more agnostic than V2 was. Hmm. So to maybe sum up the history part of this and, and start to move on, we've we've actually introduced a lot of the themes that we're going to cover this season. But sort of the the through lines in terms of Uniswap's history up till this point is that it actually, that's really interesting. I hadn't necessarily thought of it like that, but there was always an element of platform to the model, right? And it was always very unopinionated about what the market for swappers and LPs were going to look like, even starting at V1. So Uniswap V4 is sort of a natural, the most recent iteration on that. You've also got this idea uh, or uh, contracts being non-upgradable, um, non-custodial. Those are things that have stuck with Uniswap throughout the years. And then the last thing maybe to, to end it on before we get into our, our themes is I, I feel like I've seen this a couple times in crypto, um, actually a lot in crypto, which is I don't have a more eloquent way of saying you need to meet the market where it's at and uh, not just try to design for the customer that you think might be here in five years. Because then what you end up doing is you sit, you end up sitting, you know, sitting on your, your hands for a couple of years waiting and then you get no traction. And as, as opposed to starting with something that's a little bit more simple, having the, the market come to you and then being able to iterate based on some early success. And I just, yeah, again, from the outside, it just feels like Uniswap has done that. Super Absolutely. Well. And I think it's important to still be kind of pushing the envelope in terms of in terms of making things better and always be doing things like concentrated liquidity was this. And I think before is the, like this, Uniswap X is like this, where some people at the time are like, oh, no, we liked it how it was. I think if you're not doing that, getting a little of that, um, then you're not pushing forward fast enough. But yeah, very, very often, I think people people aren't actually looking at what the needs, the immediate being driven by the immediate needs in the market. Um, and I think that uh, that's like one of the biggest mistakes you can make. I agree. All right, let's let's move a little bit into the themes of our season, many of which you introduced actually in the first part of this. But the first one we'll talk about, uh, we'll, we'll call it value capture in the DEX ecosystem. And really what we mean by this is when we're talking about scaling a DEX, we need to balance the needs of two different stakeholders, which is swappers and LPs. So I know you have thoughts on this, but can you just kind of walk through that idea of sustainably or equitably scaling a DEX between these two parties? Yeah. So I think if you go back to the early days of Uniswap, there were basically two charts that I would just look at all the time on Uniswap.info. And it was the the TVL, just the total amount of value locked uh, in top pairs and, and across the system. Um, and that's the amount of liquidity that's being provided. And then there's the daily volume. Um, and I think, you know, if you asked at the time, like, which one drives the other, I think you'd say, like, they there's you know there's chicken and egg right there's, they they both drive each other um mm -hmm. you're not going to get any volume if you don't have significant liquidity and if you don't have real like uh, volume and i think more than arbitrage you need to have some like some actual retail volume on it then the people aren't you know liquidity is not going to come um and so i think it is it's essential during this during this old bootstrapping phase of a of a decentralized exchange or any or any application to be serving um both of those constituencies um if i had to if i had to pick like what is what is a dex for um, and I've gotten in trouble for this before, but I, th I think it's true. If I had to pick what is a DEX, I think a DEX is for the swappers. I think the point of it, the point of a decentralized exchange is to be able to trade non-custodially um, and to get the best prices. And to some extent, the LPs are there because because it is valuable for them to be there for the swappers. Um, I, I basically don't buy the philosophy that like, oh, it's, it, the whole point of this is people should be able to provide retail uh, uh, liquidity. Because like, if, if there's no swapping going on, then it's not going to make sense for them. Like, what, what are we even doing here? 
Um, right. So I think yeah. I think it's I think it's a decent exchange and LPs are there for that. But that said, like you have to absolutely keep a balance where um, liquidity providers you can't screw over liquidity providers in order to um, to favor swappers or they're going to leave and you're not going to have you're not going to have a dex either. Yeah, I think it's such a good point because you know people will often bring up the Bill Gurley quote of trying to scale two sided marketplaces, and I'm slightly paraphrasing here, but if I have to choose between the supply and demand side, I'll pick the demand. But you still got to do both at the same time, yeah. right? You need the LPs to be there. Otherwise, there's no one to trade against. Yeah. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit, you know, to use the phrase value capture. Right now, there's a tremendous amount of value that is leaking out of this ecosystem, right? And it kind of happens in the form of uh, MEV in, in many ways. And there are different types of MEV. But, you know, you've done a really good job of highlighting some of the value that's flowing out of the DEX ecosystem and sort of mapping that onto some of the most interesting branches of DEX research. Can you walk us through how you see that? Yeah. So this this gets to my perspective that actually, you know, we talk about this LP versus swapper um, tension and dynamic, but really what matters is actually growing the size of the pie for both for both parties. And ultimately, it's it's, it's certainly not a zero sum game between LPs and swappers. And again, like you're not going to if if decks are successful, both are going to be are going to be very well served. And if you if you end up killing your decks and they both end up um, end up screwed. So you, you, what matters actually is where's the value leaking that isn't going to LPs and swappers. And I think there's there's three big ones that I that I can think of, at least in in uh, current DEXs on Ethereum. One of them is um, is loss versus rebalancing, which is this is this common um, research theme recently. And that's uh, you can think about that as the as a kind of the latency arbitrage that's that's sacrificed by liquidity providers. And what it means what that means is when you're providing liquidity on a on a DEX and the price changes on a centralized exchange, it changes somewhere else. And somebody arbitrages the um, the DEX to the to have it match the centralized exchange price. Um, liquidity providers lose money compared to what they would have what would have happened if they had just executed at the new price or if they didn't trade at all, um, because they end up uh, they end up executing this trade with the arbitrageur that the average cost of that trade is worse than the worse than the current price that they could be getting for the asset, um, and so they've lost a little money within this block um, compared to again, the, compared to the cost of. Uh, of rebalancing, so that's loss versus rebalancing. Is imagine if they had actually traded at the at the true price, if they were able to rebalance, rebalance on on Binance or this external centralized exchange. And I know we'll talk a lot about loss rebalancing, but that that's one way in which in which loss uh, leaks out of the system. And I think this is very interesting because back when you know Hayden and I were thinking about this as as impermanent loss, I think in some in some real sense, impermanent loss is, is unavoidable. Um, but I think loss versus rebalancing is not exactly as unavoidable um, as impermanent mm. losses because you have to rebalance to be a market maker, but you don't necessarily have to rebalance at a worse price or at least like a worse price, you know, any worse than like epsilon compared to the to the current price. In theory, if you were a professional market maker, you'd rebalance, be rebalancing on Binance or something, right? You'd be rebalancing maybe at a better price. And so you'll lose some money, but um, that's something you can really make a dent in. Whereas again, I think impermanent loss and everyone who's tried to, to sort of solve impermanent loss, I think has has catastrophically usually failed, um, uh, sometimes horrifically so. And I think, but I think loss of rebalancing is much, much more uh, tractable problem. Well, I think we'll talk in the episode about how those, how those two concepts differ. Another uh, uh, way the value leaks out is um, for traders, just their, their um, uh, price slippage. Um, their trade executing it worse than their uh, than the price that they uh, than they might have been able to get somewhere else, and I think that um, uh, most most egregiously happens when a trade is sandwiched. And a sandwich attack is when somebody trades on a trades ahead of you. They see your trade coming on a, on a AMM. They trade ahead of you to cause you to get a worse price. So they front run you first, and then they back run you. They trade against uh, the other direction on the AMM in order to, to lock in a profit for themselves. Um, and I think that's a way to get a risk free profit sometimes. And 
that's one that again I think people people were were talking about since the early days of Uniswap, but ha- sort of got professionalized over the course of the other years. And I think I think it's a big problem and one that's important to address. Um, but but slippage can happen for other reasons. It may just be your your trade doesn't get optim- optimally routed. Um, sandwiching yeah. is just one. It's just sort of maybe the most egregious example. Um, and then the final one is is the gas, the the transaction fees um, that the transaction is paying to the platform. And on Ethereum, that's generally in the form of um, the base fee or the the EIP fifteen fifty nine um, burn. And so that's that's a significant cost that uh, Uniswap users are paying in order to be able to to use the Ethereum platform. And that's another area where I think we, you know, improvements in that have typically come from trying to gas optimize the um, the implementation and make it as efficient as possible. Yeah. So to just bookend the first part of this theme, which is value capture, if I'm reading you right, you know, we, we shouldn't be thinking about this sort of tension in between swappers and LPs, because really there's so much leakage that's going out of the system that there's just a lot of wood to chop in order to just secure that all up within the DEX ecosystem. Yeah. And on all of these, I would I would say, uh, debatably, AP 1559, all of these sort of fall into the category of MEV, uh, minor extractable value, or, or I guess I just call it MEV now. It doesn't really stand for anything like the SAT. Um, yeah. MEV, but uh, but I think essentially this is going to the proposers of the blocks. Um, as value that's just being extracted out of the system um, that could be going potentially to swappers or LPs. The one other thing I think is, so some value is leaking out, but some value just never comes in, right? Because swap fees are so high, because the um, uh, the burn, the ETH cost of transaction is so is so high, a lot of trades just probably don't happen. Like you might get a lot more volume. And we, you see on L2s, we start to see like volume actually goes up a lot. Um, once you decrease the, the fixed cost of trading. And similarly with, with liquidity provision, you might get a lot more uh, liquidity provided if you didn't have loss reserve balancing. You might get a lot more volume if it couldn't be sandwiched or if it wouldn't have slippage. And like these are not costs, this, this is not value that's going to swappers LPs. It's not even value that's going to MEV. It's just stuff that isn't, isn't actually happening. It's, it's deadweight loss. And I think reducing that deadweight loss by decreasing some of these costs, I think could, could just benefit everyone in the system, including Ethereum, including the, the platform itself. Yeah. So we've got our, our three branches of DEX research that we're going to be talking about a lot. LVR, which is a specific measure of some of the, the value leakage away from LPs uh, towards arbitrageurs or people that are trading at a better price. Then there's uh, what we can maybe just call best execution. So the slippage that uh, traders suffer by swapping on a DEX. And then there's just the the burn. We, we call it maybe the, the platform tax that Ethereum extracts from apps that are built on its ecosystem. You were starting to just get at that. So maybe let's tack those in reverse order here. So the platform tax that Ethereum extracts. So you were saying that basically there's this concept of deadweight loss, which is that if, if, the, if the transaction costs are high enough, you, you're just going to get people that don't trade on Uniswap or anywhere else on Ethereum, and it's going to go to Binance or something like that. So by having that much cost, it's not like, hey, Ethereum's taking too much. It's just that's just so high that that's just trade volume that we're just not going to see otherwise, right? So that's a big issue. Yeah, you have this concept from economics of the of the Laffer curve, which is about how um, uh, uh, government revenue respond responds to the rate of taxation. And if you imagine, for example, like a one hundred percent income tax. Um, uh, government revenue would actually probably be zero dollars because nobody would work because there's no incentive to, or you know, you might you might imagine maybe like 110 percent nobody absolutely nobody would work even if they gave all their they have more than all their money to the government, um, uh, and then zero percent because if uh, the government would make no money so somewhere in between there um, and you can sort of imagine this curve in between somewhere in between there's some optimal rate of taxation for for government revenue and I think there's something similar for um, uh, for the platform tax that's that's uh, imposed by Ethereum where if um, the burn is too high. If the if the cost of just transacting on Ethereum is too high, then no one will go there. No one will no one will actually use it. And if it's too low, then Ethereum doesn't um, 
uh, doesn't capture any value from transactions that happen on it. And so at either of those extremes, it's zero dollars, and somewhere in between, we you imagine we have the we have the maximum. And my my guess, and I, I don't have I don't have proof of this or evidence of this, and I'm starting to think maybe I should I should look into it. My guess is that we're higher on the Laffer curve. Um, uh, we're we're at a point where actually, if, if you would lower um, the base fee, lower lower that, then actually you would get more ultimately. Um, more value accruing to, to Ethereum. The amount of transactions that happen across different smart contract platforms, based on what you know about the fees on that platform, do not it has not played out how I you would thought, right? If I just told you there's there are platforms out there where you can get charged, you know, 0.001 cents or something, or like 20 bucks, you know, just guess where more transactions are happening. It wouldn't have necessarily happened like that. There's, you know, without getting into specific, I think there's a lot of path dependency when it comes to these ecosystems as well. And um yeah, I but I think your point is absolutely very well taken that I think lower lower gas cost there's probably some equilibrium, right, where we can maximize yeah. the amount of value that participants in the ecosystem get and that the the ecosystem itself can actually extract. And where it's, and you know where it's still Ethereum where you it's there's still there's a lot of network effects and path dependency obviously where people want to trade in Ethereum even if it costs a lot more. And the key idea here is it might be possible to actually lower those rates and still and increase the lower the, lower those rates increase the actual um uh, usage. And I think we, we don't see that exactly on Ethereum now because um, the max the max gas uh, the, like the max block size actually doesn't like increase necessarily. So again, it's hard it's hard to see that. Um, but if you could if you were able to basically scale things more and, and get more um, get more usage, I think you I think you might actually see more revenue and therefore you know a more a more secure L1 as well. So we kind of it's kind of a, a free lunch. Yeah. Now, the the last question I want to ask you about gas is, I think, kind of interesting is if you're designing, especially an, any app on Ethereum L1, you're designing in a very gas constrained environment and it limits, for example, the types of strategies that LPs can do. And it, therefore, it sort of fundamentally limits what you can do in terms of your platform. So can you, can you just kind of like as someone who's probably thought through uh, sort of gas efficiency when you're designing these protocols, I mean, what are kind of the design constraints, right? And we're, we're going to talk to some uh, some people from the Solana ecosystem that are building DEXs that don't have these constraints. So be curious to get a compare contrast. But you know, what kind of lessons do you have in terms of building in a gas constrained environment? Yeah. So a big a big one, um, and this was a lesson that was learned fairly early on. Um, but it's that the the naive way you might want to build this, which would be an on chain central limit order book, um, just mm. doesn't work. And the primary yeah. reason it doesn't work is that the cost of placing and canceling and claiming orders um, is too expensive. Um, it's, it just costs way too much to, and the thing is on, on a traditional, um, uh, centralized exchange, I think and with professional market makers and everything, I think, uh, the number of the average number of times trades are, um, are canceled orders are canceled is far greater. It's like 10, maybe do a hundred times as great as, as they are executed against. So when you, if you have a, a on-chain order book where you'll have to like do a transaction to place an order and then do a transaction to cancel an order, you just can't professional American basically, uh, profitably market make as a, as a, um, even, even if I think uh, gas costs were a lot lower, even if they're like 10 times lower, I think they'd have to be like a hundred, um, or more times lower for this to be, to be really worthwhile. Um, so that model doesn't work. And the two models that have tended to work are, um, uh, AMMs and, and off-chain uh, order books, and um, AMMs with like you know Bancor and then and then Uniswap as sort of as the uh, early ones. The key innovation here is you don't have to place a new order every time your order gets crossed because it gets automatically um, um, uh, flipped for you. Basically, when right, if, if someone if someone trades against an AMM, um, instead of like everyone has to come back in and place a new order. Um, uh, instead, like it's automatically placed, the AMM automatically makes makes uh, market back going in the other direction. 
Um, and so that reduces that that uh, that gas cost. And the other thing is a, is a off-chain AMM where, or an off-chain, I'm sorry, an off-chain central limit order book like like Zero X, or in some ways like um, like Uniswap Access, although it isn't really an order book, um, where the orders are orders are off-chain and they only get put on-chain when they get executed again. So that that also, depending on how you do it, can really reduce reduces the cost of of canceling orders and placing them. Yeah, well, we'll get into that, what belongs on-chain versus off-chain in yeah. a bit as well. Um, and then maybe to just briefly touch on the other, so best execution and LVR. Uh, LVR is a funny one. I actually, I don't know if I told you this, but before this season, I, I did ask a couple of people, it's like, hey, do you know what LVR is? And people were like, yeah, no, no, I know what LVR is. And then proceeded to confidently tell me a definition that was completely wrong. <laughs> and uh, I think the, the way to, the, that sort of my journey in terms of understanding what it is, is just, it actually sort of mirrors how, market makers and TradFi think about profitability. And the key thing, if you're someone who's familiar with financial statements, profitability is always sort of an expected metric. Like if you look at the P&L, that doesn't actually line up with cash coming in and cash going out. It's sort of an expected measure of profit over a certain period of time. And market makers or anyone that's managing inventory actually have a pretty complicated sort of business under the hood, right? They're placing trades, um, they might want to understand their expected profitability after a period of time, even though they don't necessarily sell those trades after. So they've developed these techniques in TradFi. I guess the best analogy would be sort of a markout or realized spread. And then that has gotten mapped. Those those concepts have gotten mapped onto LPs. And we've started to ask in a more sophisticated way, how can we make sure that these trades are profitable, that they're placing? And what we found is that they probably aren't. Right. <laughs> like, right. That's the, the take. In, some, in at least some cases, that's what some of the studies have found. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's right. That, that That's right. So now there's a there's a very nitpicky in the weeds debate we could have about about lever. And I think we probably will get in, into it with the guests that we're planning to have on on that episode. Um, but we're actually the first paper that defined lever um, did so without the concept of fees. There weren't fees on the it was assuming there were no fees on the AMM. Um, and the second paper came up, you know, added the concept of fees, and then uh, came up with a new word to describe loss versus rebalancing, basically after fees, uh, which is they just, they just define it with this term, ARB profit. So lever, as defined in the papers, only means without fees. But that's an incredibly nitpicky technical academic point. But yeah, so the, the, the key, I think the key, the key idea about lever is, yeah, if, at the beginning of every block, if the price is moved somewhere else, uh, liquidity providers are getting, get ARBed. And then they they lose money um, because that our trade happens at a worse price than um, than the true price, and so in expectation, as a result, you know uh, they're they're losing money relative to if you, if you were just um, you you could just be like delta hedging, you could just be trading these doing this exact same strategy, the rebalancing strategy on a centralized exchange and make more money than you could be as an as a liquidity provider. And so there's there's some you know. Uh, Subtleties in exactly how why, why this is the thing to measure, and I think we'll definitely get into it in that episode. Um, but I think it's important to think about the concept just just very in like a very microstructure level, where it's just like it just means at the beginning of the of every block or at some point during every block, there's usually like some net trade that makes that is bad for liquidity providers, and everything else has to make up for that. And I think if you think about things in that way, um, it starts to well, for one thing, like it's different from how I was thinking about it in 2019, for sure. And in part, that's because I think we we had sort of the luxury of there wasn't um, basically, yeah, there, there wasn't a very sophisticated toxic flow, um, uh, a lot of like a lot of toxic flow, and like there was a lot of non-toxic flow, and all of it was coming to us whether we would get the price best price there or not. So I think um, I think it just wasn't the right thing to worry about at the time. But now certainly is, and I think as we start to be able to measure it more, we can think about okay, how can we actually design um, DEXs to to address this problem. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I, I also think I uh, got to give a shout out. This is a very crypto thing to say, but I got to shout out Zero X FBI Femboy, um, who is the uh, who is a member of the now Ambient Finance X Croc Swap team. Who originally in I think he was one of the first to at least publicly put out sort of empirical studies of impermanent loss um, on Uni V three, which were really helpful, and maybe that laid some of the groundwork towards lever. Yeah, them. I think the yeah. the Bancor guys did. Um, did a, put out a paper on it. Um, and then I think Thicky Thought on Twitter, yeah, again, this is only in crypto, uh, right? Thicky Thought on Twitter, um, uh, ha, I think has done some good work on markouts. I'm, you know, I, I haven't looked closely enough at like all the analyses here. And I think there's a lot of subtleties, but yeah, like a lot of work, especially done on the youth USC five bit pool, um, which I think is important. Yeah. Work. Agreed. So we'll be kind of continuously referring back to some, we, we've got our first episode actually to tease that a little bit is a, is a deep dive on lever, which is going to be a ton of fun. Uh, but we're going to be kind of referring back to these, these areas, which is loss versus rebalancing, best execution and uh, sort of gas optimization. Um, next, I uh, want to get into the tension, some tensions that we see in DEX design. And there are three big tensions that I want to call out. So let's call it the active versus passive LPing. Uh, tension that you might see indexes. There's the on-chain versus off-chain, and then there is the retail versus toxic order flow tension. So one thing that you used to hear quite a bit back in 2020 or 2021, maybe, was this sort of uh, AMM versus DEX holy war of like, it's going to be AMMs or it's going to be DEXs. And at least um, the way that I've started to see it in preparing for the season is the lines are already starting to blur. Like Uniswap V3 looks a little bit more like a central limit order book than at least V1 did. And a lot of actually what we're really debating here is active versus passive liquidity provision. And in a central limit order book, assuming that gas costs aren't a thing, uh, market makers are very actively placing and withdrawing bids. And uh, in an AMM, it's just super passive. And a lot of the DEX design today exists sort of somewhere on the spectrum of active versus passive liquidity provision. So my question to you, Dan, is A, do you also see it like that? And then B, where ultimately, if we're having this conversation five, 10 years from now, what does the sort of market share look like of active versus passive liquidity provision? Yeah. So I think it's important not to be too religious about some of these things. And I think maybe mm. I, I at times maybe have been more, have had more religion around one concept of how decentralized exchange should work. But ultimately, a lot of it, I think, shakes out to, to just the empirics of, and it can depend on these really just sort of like niggling details about like, is um, what is the relative gas cost of so-and-so operation or what data structure actually works for this? Those aren't the kind of things you'd be able to derive from first principles. Um, and so the idea that, oh, like, I know that AMMs will win, or I know that central limit order books will win um, just from like, yeah, the idea that you could just come up with that without diving really deep and trying to build one or the other and trying to figure these out, I think it's just it's just not possible because again, you're just gonna it's gonna depend on these really detailed in the weeds in the weeds things about how what works from like a gas perspective or a UX perspective or how Ethereum works, something like that. But Dan, this is crypto. We get religious <laughs> about really small technical details. That's what it's we're true. doing here. It's true, yeah. <laughs> um, and again, I think the religion actually does it helps a lot in terms of of um, uh, spurring like these big changes that otherwise maybe, maybe wouldn't be possible. Um, yeah, I but I think ultimately, yeah, ultimately you just got to look at kind of the, the actual costs and the, um, uh, and some of the, the specific affordances of the platform and figuring out what, what will make the most sense. But yeah, so with, with active and passive liquidity, I do think in a, there was a period, yeah, in 2019, 2020, where there was just way more passive liquidity than there was uh, active. There weren't a lot of professional market makers who wanted to touch crypto. Um, 
And so at the time, actually, you got not just in the long tail, which is which is obviously it's still true. I think may always be true that you that you will have more passive liquidity in the long tail. Um, but uh, but in the in the in the short tail, like you could have like a lot of um, just a lot of liquidity, and where where USCC uh, weath becomes way easier to trade on on Uniswap. There's a lot more liquidity for it on Uniswap than there is even on these off chain central limit order books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I think that was that was sort of an, an essential um, thing. At the same time, you do have a lot of inefficiency when you uh, if you go with passive liquidity, and as you start to see more sophisticated parties actually move in. Um, as passive, if, if you're trying to be fully passive um, and you're just running the naive strategy that Uniswap you know, v1, v2, um, we're doing, you probably eventually you get basically outcompeted by liquidity that's able to, that's more capital efficient, that's able to respond more to prices. Um, and I think that you sort of just had to see the writing on the wall a bit there and say, okay, even this is this is dominating um, right now, but okay, like what's actually the end game? And I think part of it is if we don't want this to go completely like centralized. We want it, it needs to still be decentralized, but it may need to go more sophisticated. And it goes, okay, like who do we actually want to be? What, what sacrifices are we willing to make there? And it goes, all right, well, I think we can, I would rather count on liquidity providers to be more, to be more sophisticated than, um, than people just putting in money, like than just whales putting money into, into a Uniswap v2 pool. It says, okay, I'm, I'm willing to believe that there's going to be like a, a, um, at least some liquidity writers are going to be able to do that. And so that's that's the motivation behind B, V3. And it says, okay, and then that's going to keep us from being outcompeted by the aggregators or by the RFQ systems, at least for a while. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like it just, I'm not sure. Yeah, I also am not a huge fan of religious thinking. And I do think there are, yeah, you got to be pragmatic about it at some point. And it's not, I, I would love it if retail ended up being, able to make money passive LPing, it doesn't make intuitive sense to me that they really should be. And it's certainly not a God-given right. Well, it, you know, yes, that's not, a... not, not in how it's currently designed, I would say. Right. I think, I think, and V4, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, like there's there's certain kind, new kinds of designs you might be able to put in that could actually make it a lot more profitable. Um, by, by, reca- by, by reducing, if you reduce the lever, it starts to make a lot more sense that you might be able to. Um, yeah. But yeah, but I think without without some kind of solution to lever, it feels it feels tough in the long run for that to happen. Let's talk about on chain versus off chain. So maybe we could bring this into Uniswap X, actually, which is another recent product launch from Uniswap, which is sort of this um, aggregator layer isn't really the right thing. It's really it's an off chain uh, RFQ system. But uh, kind of walk us through it's it's become a bit of a debate because in originally all all of liquidity sort of existed. Um, on chain with Uniswap, right? In the AMM, you just locked up a whole bunch of liquidity there. But now I've actually heard you in an interview say, eh, maybe it actually doesn't really make sense because it's a little bit of a honeypot, right? It's a security concern and we might not be getting best prices for our swappers. So, I mean, walk us through, I mean, even if you could just imagine kind of like the the different parts of a DEX, like what are the important parts to maintain, maintain decentralization to be on chain? And then what is it like, yeah, we can actually have this part off chain. Sure. Well, so first I'll say, I think when I'm talking about a honeypot, um, typically I'm talking there and not having on-chain liquidity and like and moving entirely or almost entirely off of, off of on-chain liquidity. That's in the context of cross-chain swapping, which Bridge, I think we'll talk about yeah. in, in a future episode. And I think with bridges, it's a lot more dangerous to have on-chain liquidity. And so the, the fully off-chain designs seem a lot more appealing to me. I think I think with, with single-chain liquidity, like there's a lot of tremendous benefits to on-chain liquidity and passive liquidity. Um, and I, I, I think we will be able to preserve those and I think they're worth preserving. Much less clear to me with, with cross-chain. Which parts of a DEX are important to be, like if you 
just imagine sort of the stack of the decks. Like I know for Antonio, what was sort of prompting the question is I know Antonio, when he moved over to DYDX, a big part of that motivation was the fact that you just could not have a, an on-chain order right. book, right. Based on a, an Ethereum sort of roll up. So I'm just sort of wondering like, what are the parts of a chip? Like again, from an outsider's perspective, it started to say, well, the guts of an exchange, actually we can keep mostly off chain, but as long as settlement is on chain, that's, that's good enough. Yeah. Whereas I'm sort of wondering where's the nuance in the gray area there and which are the important parts of an exchange to keep uh, on chain. To me, the essential thing and something that I hope we never have to compromise on is that um, as non-custodial, non-custodialness and and permissionlessness. Um, And I think non-custodialness maybe being the most important is that it should never be the case that swappers... um, uh, are trusting are trusting anyone that, or like liquidity providers or governance or the LPs or anything with their money. And it should never be the case that the LPs, um, liquidity providers, if, if you're providing liquidity, you shouldn't be trusting like a governance system or something with your money. You should still be, um, you should be depending maybe on some properties of the system um, and like that there aren't any bugs in the contract. But in general, I think it's it's important that you uh, you still have custody of your money, and you, and that uh, nobody's able to like to rug it from you. So I think that those are important, really important properties to to preserve. I think a lot of the other ones are are more instrumental to me. I think some like like programmability and composability, right? Um, these are really important. Mm-hmm. Composability being the ability to do something atomically, or atomicity exercise, a better term than composability. Atomicity, the ability to to do a on Uniswap at the same time as you do some other, atomically with some other operation on Ethereum. I think that's very yeah. important um, and like was really useful. Like a lot of um, Ethereum of, of Uniswap volume um, is atomically combined with other with other actions on chain. And so um, I think that's really important. It's cool that you can do a flash uh, flash loan or a flash swap in order to um, to arbitrage some other decks or to or to do a, a like a large borrowing position or something using using Uniswap. I think that's important. I don't think it's not. I don't think it's essential. I think in fact, like many trades, don't need to be composed with other things. And so if we can if we can sacrifice that property in favor of another, I think that's I think that's um, potentially valuable. I think uh, programmability and uh, I would call this like maybe visibility of of liquidity on chain, right? incredibly important in the early days of Uniswap and today for liquidity mining, for the property of you're able to pay somebody for providing liquidity um, when that's provided on-chain in a way that you can't really do um, if, it, if the liquidity is provided off-chain, not, not trustlessly. And so I think that's very important for certain for a lot of kinds of use cases. It's not necessarily important for everything. Like for the most part, maybe like ETH USCC volume isn't isn't like subsidized and it's still uh, ETH USCC liquidity is not subsidized by anything. Nobody's running liquidity mining campaigns and no one ever has as far as I know. Um, yeah. Oh, I guess I mean, other, other than the than DEXs, obviously. Um, but uh, but nobody is right now on Uniswap. Nevertheless, you know, almost half of, of Uniswap volume is, is ETH USCC. So I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not an essential property that it be that the liquidity be visible there because it's not being really used in that way. Um, and so I think some of these are, there's different applications, different kinds of things you might mean by DEX. And so different, yeah, you, I'm willing to sacrifice some of these. But I think it's really important is when you don't become like a centralized exchange in the terms of like, in terms of you're trusting some company that to hold your assets. And right. that just often hasn't worked out well, unfortunately. And I think it's I think yeah. it is a pretty essential uh, essential in crypto that it that it not be. I think th- I think there's another sense of permissionlessness where it is important to me that you be able to trade uh, to be able to trade whatever assets you want on the system in some sense, maybe with degraded performance. Um, and I think that's why it's, it'll always be useful to have purely on chain exchanges. But um, uh, but yeah, again, I think the non custodialness is the most important to me. Yeah, I think that's well said. And then maybe the the last tension is um, you know we talked a lot about. 
a lot of people have probably heard this phrase toxic order flow that just consider that sort of informed order flow, right? Yeah. There's and broadly two groups of, of traders. There are retail traders like you and me who are, well, maybe not you, but me, uh, who's a, a dumb retail trader and generally is not trading on market edge. And it's just like, Hey, I feel like buying some Ethereum today. And that's really good from the perspective of a market maker or an LP, right? Because I'm probably wrong or there's a good chance that I'm wrong. Uh, and so you can actually quote me in, in TradFi, you could quote me a really good price. And then there's toxic order flow, which again, in the in the TradFi analogy would be like Goldman Sachs, right? So if Goldman Sachs wants to sell you $100 million worth of some stock, you should probably be pretty concerned that they're going to run over you because they're pretty smart guys and they might know something that you don't know. So from the profitability of a maker or an LP standpoint, it's very important to get an understanding of who are your retail traders and who are, who are the the informed sort of toxic order flow. Um, and the question, I guess, is like, how do you segment those out? Is it appropriate to charge toxic order flow more, for instance, which might make sense. But then if you think about overall volumes for an exchange like Uniswap, I would guess it's probably mostly at this point what you would call toxic order flow. So what does that end up do to your, doing to your volume? So I just spit a bunch of words at you, but how do you kind of think about that tension of balancing out retail order flow versus more toxic order flow? Yeah. So I think, yes, I think I think uh, my understanding is that probably a majority of volume on Uniswap is arbitrage volume, um, yeah. in in some form or another, um, and then some percentage of it is probably like like sandwich volume or something that's you know like like you don't want it to happen, um, even if it isn't technically technically uh, arbitrage volume. So if you were to like solve some of the problems we were talking about before, in some sense volume um, on these probably goes down if you just, if you just remove these. But at the same time, if you remove um, toxic order flow uh imagine you say like you get no toxic order flow and and um or rather I, it's sort of tough to figure out what that even means on an amm but really it would be like that it rebalances at the true price rather than at the at the price that the that the arbitrage person would want to trade on the on the pool at um suddenly it becomes more profitable to to be an lp and as a result you might get a lot more liquidity on the pool and if you get more liquidity mm -hmm. now you can actually get more natural more retail trading volume and i think it's a sign you know right Dex volume estimated around ten to fifteen percent of of centralized exchange crypto volume. Um, if you if you say okay, I, but actually maybe half or more of that volume actually shouldn't really count because it's arbitrage volume. It's stuff that doesn't even show up on the Binance volume, arguably because on Binance it might show up as just people canceling orders. Um, that means actually that that's good news because it means in fact that we have more room to grow. There's actually more possibility for growth if and like we're more likely to get there if we actually cut out the cut out the, the the toxic volume so i think ultimately it's something we should welcome and the credit should welcome it swappers um uh, uh uninformed swappers should all should all welcome this um and uniswap as a platform it, it just would be good um yeah and again i i think uh i i don't think it, it behooves us at all to be to be deluded about that fact um, that yeah, and like a lot of the volume is volume actually you might not want on the on the uh, to actually be happening. It's unprofitable effectively. Yeah. What do you think? And this will come up, I think, in our discussion of LVR as well. But one of the big topics in Dexland right now is dynamic fees as well, right? You could consider this at a very high level, almost like surge pricing for market makers. Market makers tend to uh, usually do well when spread. They they make money by charging a spread, right? Now sometimes you can end up taking warehousing a lot of risk and and uh, take a big loss. But in general, market makers like it when there's volatility, you get the spreads get higher. But one of the one of the problems in AMMs from my understanding is you don't really have that differential pricing option. So I mean, how do you kind of think about um, appropriately charging arbitrageurs for what they're doing? And also in times of, uh, you know, extreme market stress, right? Like, how do you 
crank up the surge the surge charge. Yeah, so I think a lot of this is uh, comes down to just to the lever reduction strategies that we'll talk about more in that episode. Um, mm. Because a lot of what people currently use fees for right now is to is to protect against that initial uh, arbitrage. And if you imagine like raising the fee so that um, uh, like in, in times of volatility, that's typically I think because otherwise you'll lose a lot more in those times to um, to arbitrage trades. And so if you have a solution potentially for lever or a good mitigation for that, it may reduce the need to do that. But um, in some other sense, like picking an optimal fee does depend on this function that we just have no idea what it is. And that's just the demand curve for retail trading volume as a function of fees. And I've talked to some academics about this and, and some practitioners. Nobody has any idea what that what that looks the demand function looks like. Um, yeah. And I think market makers do a lot of do a lot of different strategies, basically partly in order to, in terms of how they of how they market make in order to try to maximize revenue. But I don't think that's anything you just put into a like you can't just plug it into a formula and put it on chain. So a lot of the ideas that I've seen and, and some that I, I've I work on a paper around uh, around this actually right now. Um, but those ideas are more around trying to align off chain parties to to pick your strategy for you and get them to be incentivized to be able to pick, okay, what should these fees be or what should, what, you know, what, what, what trade should happen, um, uh, by, yeah, by sort of having them, having them be aligned with, uh, with liquidity providers. Yeah. All right. I want to, I want to introduce our, our next set of topics here, which is order flow auctions and intents. So intents is something that has been a buzzword for a little while. I feel like that's generally well understood at this point, but could you give us a sense of like, just define intents for us and then talk about how, like, I think Uniswap X is a really good example of this. CowSwap is another really good example of this. What does it mean to design uh, sort of an intent first architecture, so to speak? Yeah. And how's that going to impact DEXs? I think I'm, I'm not going to give the best explanation of intents in part because I'm, I'm not really as up to date on like on the lore and the and the, the what standard thing people call it. So like I'll use sort of my own terminology. My my the way I would think about it is that a transaction, an Ethereum transaction, is this exact like message format where you sign and has you know like your the uh, tx.origin and it has like a some call data and it has you know a two address and and has some priority fee and uh, and base fee and everything right. And like there's this format you can sign a message. And intent is literally anything else. An intent is just any message that you're assigning that isn't an Ethereum transaction in this context is what I would say. Okay, that's an intent. Um, and so when you think about like intent-based designs, you know, I I, I think of like ZeroX, the original um, uh, ZeroX uh, uh, protocol as being like one example where you're signing off chain limit orders. Um, uh, but, you know, a lot, a lot of other things are. I think in general and in the idea, I think, of an intent is you're signing a message that expresses, you know, not not how you want to do something, which is what an Ethereum transaction effectively does, but um, but what you want to do, what you want to be done. And then you leave it to others to potentially solve this, uh, figure out how to get it to you. Um, and then your transaction, you know, your order for and a, a limit order, I think, is a great example of an intent. It's not the only kind, uh, but it's one that probably is what we'll mean usually when we talk about intents in this context. It'll yeah. be some kind of limit order. Um, or maybe a market order um, is uh, is just it's an intent to say like I'm willing to trade at this price I w or or better um, but if if not like don't even include my transaction I don't even want to be heard from and if if this tra my transaction my my order my my signed intent will only be ever included and executed against in a transaction that successfully actually uh, gives me what I want from it and what I like about intents is it is just like like I said, it is the vast majority of all possible designs for things don't involve. I signed exactly an Ethereum transaction that gets submitted as a, as an Ethereum transaction on the chain, right? And so it's just an incredibly more flexible 
way of designing a, a decentralized exchange. And what I love about Uniswap X, which is which is this uh, intense based protocol that um, Uniswap uh, launched recently, um, is that it it moves us into intense space. It moves us into this incredibly much more flexible design space, um, and it allows you to do a lot more potentially off chain. Yeah, it's you know the simple explanation of intense that made a lot of sense to me was just to put it in really high level terms is you're hard coding the output, not the input, right? So you have the flexibility to do whatever whatever you really want in terms of get, as long as we get this guaranteed output. And it gives, um, it, 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 it sort of changes the architecture, right, of DEXs and able to, to be able to actually execute this more nebulous sort of structure for input. So Uniswap X would be a really good example of that. CowSwap 0X, I'm less familiar with 0X as I'm talking about it less, but basically the idea would be instead of like a transaction getting placed on Uniswap and then some MEV bot comes and builds that and sends that into a bundle and sends it off to MEVBoost and it gets put into a block. Instead, there are these much more nebulous sort of flexible intents that also get passed down to called fillers or solvers. But my, my understanding is that there'd be builders and they manage and abstract away a lot of the cross-chain complexity uh, and then end up sort of executing those transactions for you, right? So if you're an intense first app, then you have to think about how am I going to recruit this network of hopefully permissionless builders, Yeah, right? so exactly. So it depends on a lot more off-chain infrastructure generally, intense-based architectures yeah. do. And one of the cool things is, I think, in the past couple of years, we went from having felt relatively unsophisticated off-chain actors. And when you were designing protocols in 2017 or 2018, you might design this beautiful protocol that incentivized somebody, <laughs> anyone to like come and do something. And then just they wouldn't show up and do it. No one would show up and take this free money that you were leaving on the ground. And then I think with the MEV revolution in, in 20, um, 2020, 2021, um, you actually started to see, okay, like actually people will take this money. And so now yeah. we can actually depend on them to do this and we can design our protocols with that in mind. And with Intense, I think, um, yeah, there's ways to do it with more centralized systems, but there's there's ways to design Intense-based systems that don't, yeah. And I think Ubisoft X is, uh, uh, is designed partly in this way where you don't actually have to depend on anyone, um, uh, any, any trusted party, because you just sort of depend on the market to do this. And that's what the Dutch auction um, component of, of Uniswap X is designed to do. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to get into, Dan, I know you're a big fan of the Dutch auction and, uh, we're going to get oh, yeah. into, we're going to do a whole episode. <laughs> we're going to do a whole episode on order flow auctions for the OFA nerds out there, but, um, I want to keep moving through these, these, uh, themes. So one big one that is, is a little bit, um, less in the weeds of DEXs, but more high level strategy is sort of the vertical versus horizontal scaling approach. And what I mean by that is, like when I look at something like Uniswap, whether this was intentional or not, there are kind of these layers to it, right? Which is maybe like the front end or wallet layer, You've got Uniswap the wallet, Uniswap the front end. Then there's an aggregation layer, which is would be Uniswap X. You can correct me if I'm technically wrong on some of these. The liquidity layer in the form of Uniswap V4. And ultimately then maybe at some point down the road, there would be a settlement layer, right? In the form of a, could be like a the much touted uni chain that people love to write blog posts about. Um, but those are sort of the layers. And at least in terms of the liquidity layer, the aggregation layer, and the, the front-end wallet layer, it seems like Uniswap is pursuing that, which I would call sort of a more vertically integrated approach, as opposed to, I guess, in an alternative world, you could have been like, I'm going to pick one layer, right? Like MetaMask has a very horizontal sort of approach, a horizontally integrated approach where they're trying to be a wallet across multiple different chains. So can you kind of just like walk us through the internal strategy as much as you can share in terms of the Uniswap side of things? Sure. Um, well, so first, yeah, I think definitely I can give, I can give some of like my thoughts. I think I'm not, it's, it's, 
uh, not going to be speaking for for Uniswap or even or even the paradigm or others on it. And generally, with this with this whole um, uh, on this whole series in general, whenever I'm talking, I think I'm uh, giving my own views. And again, just full disclosure, like we're invested in Uniswap, invested in some other companies we may discuss in this um, in this podcast, but none of this is investing in or, or legal advice. Um, needless to say. So, but yeah, but I think on this happy to happy Good to, disclaimer to give an hour in. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> we've got it. We've got one at the top too. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh. Yeah, so I think on um, I think on on the strategy speaking, just for my own my own view and how I see this, on all those layers, except you know, arguably with the, with the front end and the wallet, okay, like that's a fairly integrated um, you know single product that Uniswap is um, uh, provides, and I think I think uh, the Uniswap uh, Labs interface and the and the wallet are are products um, on in these layers. When you think about the other layers, um, I think it gets back to the thing we were talking about with platforms, right? And the way yeah. that they approach these, I think, is it, it is essential that these be that these be more like platforms than like than like individual products that are competing against others. And so, when you think, for example, about the liquidity layer um, with Uniswap before, it's not here. We have the solution to to liquidity. Um, we have the solution to lever. We have the solution to these systems. It's let's build a platform on which anybody who wants to build a Dex connection and, and come up with cool new solutions for this can build it and, and compete within this within this system. Um, and I think that's, that's important when you think about that layer, it's like, it's not, we're just trying to force everybody into this particular solution, but rather like, how do we actually enable the right one to the right, the people with, with the, who are best able to, to design a, a good system or to, or to provide that, um, to do it. And so thinking about it as, as a platform, even more again, than, than V3 or v, V2 already were. Um, and then when you think about it, the aggregation and routing layer, that's, um, that, that's again, the solution, Uniswap X is not an aggregator, right? It's a, it's a competitive system for um for or it's not an algorithm it's not a router it's a competitive system for routing trades and like one way i like to think about it is when you think about on-chain liquidity right now getting our the market for, for arbitraging on-chain liquidity is incredibly competitive like right now if you just put yeah. an amm on chain with like a low fee even if you don't have good docs even if you don't have like an sdk or an api right even if it's like the source code isn't verified on ethereum and either scan if it's a if it's an AMM, someone's gonna like go arbit atomically against other against a, other AMMs because that's just like free money and people will go to the trouble of, of integrating it. But they're not gonna yeah. route volume to it because it's actually really annoying to integrate somebody um, as a router, and there's not as strong an incentive to give users the best possible prices such that like I can't make necessarily that much more money if I like design a slightly better aggregator. I'd have to like go unless I work at work at one of the companies that uh, that runs aggregators, right? Um, uh, or I, mean, I have to like somehow find that user that order flow. But I think with Uniswap X, the idea is can we make it a really open competitive market to give users as good execution as possible, um, and make that the kind of have just like the brutal competition in that sphere. And I think if you do, then that makes the Uniswap the routing complexities that Uniswap before introduced is a lot simpler. Um, because then now like you can count on if somebody's uh, wants to just like put in a trade that it's going to be routed to the best pools. Um, and like you don't have to depend on on yeah again like like somebody some aggregator uh, building the building exactly the right aggregator because there'll be a competitive market to do so. So it's almost like in order to give users the experience the the best possible experience for them there are all these different challenges that need to be solved here and it makes just a lot of sense. We feel like we have the capability of doing it, so it just makes sense to try to solve all of those. That's problems right. And then I think in the long run, and this I don't have a I don't have as clear a vision for as I would like. I, in the long run, I think there it could be possible to return to, to a more integrated. Right, right now, 
this this uh, the layers are kind of are separating a bit, right? And you do have like this these com- com- people who compete on the front ends and people who compete on the routing layer and people who compete on the yeah. um, uh, for the liquidity layer. But in some sense, like what we're trying to do here is often we're trying to help like uninformed flow, like retail order flow, unsophisticated flow. And like, we're trying to enable, we want to bring in some of the original vision here. We'd like to bring in like unsophisticated <laughs> passive uh, liquidity, people who don't have to like be running this really complicated strategy. And we think you can mm. unlock a lot if you can serve both those uh, users well. And one thing might be like, what if we just match them against each other? And we say like, you're only going to trade against uh, passive liquidity, right? And I, I don't think that would work today. I don't think we have the perfect system for that. And I think you need a lot of sophisticated actors in the system. And I think in the long run, you will need these sophisticated actors to make the whole thing like like uh, uh, flow smoothly. But I wonder if we could have a system ultimately that actually reintegrated it. So that, that, that's a bit more pie in the sky, though. No, it's a super interesting idea. And honestly, the... Um... Sometimes I we talked about this last season where in, in the liquid staking season where there's a tension in between making things super permissionless versus getting the outcome that you might ultimately want and the community decides is better. So we talked about this a lot within the context of Lido and uh, and um, whether or not it would be a better outcome even for. Ethereum node operator decentralization, like if you had just left it up to the free market, right? And was just like, we're going to have no perspective over this as opposed to Lido gathering a lot of stake, you know, they put it in a small number of node, out, node operators, but they say, hey, you can't, we're going to distribute the stake. You know, you can't all just have it on AWS, that kind of thing. Um, so there is, that's what I'm kind of, that's the through line that I would draw to what you just described, which is technically it's a more integrated system. It's a rebundled system, but if you have that control, then you can actually ensure an outcome that is better. Yeah, for folks. and it's it's a real tension, and I think there there is always this tension where actually those concept of mechanism design are the cost of anarchy, where if you just have parties that don't that aren't coordinated, you might end up with just like a worse outcome um, than if you were, if you were able to set rules for the whole system. I think it's a, it's a really uneasy balance because you obviously like it's it's you don't want to give someone that power to be able to set. Um, uh, just like set the whole the rules for the whole system, and you may not end up with the the best ideal possible like benevolent dictatorship if you end up uh, give, uh, giving someone that power. Um, but yeah, you you do get a lot of benefits potentially from something being designed, a system being designed in order to, to optimize something. So it's it's a really complex and interesting um, tension there. And yeah, I think it's something that you know I think a responsibility that Unistop takes uh, and I take take fairly seriously. While at the same time recognizing you know you still actually have to compete in the real world and you don't it's not it's a privilege to be right now like a, a market leader. And I think everybody and you know I like Lido and, and Uniswap and others um in this, and Ethereum, others in this position like always do and have to keep in mind that they have to they have to remain competitive um uh within this competitive system in order to be able to have that privilege of 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 being able to sort of top-down design things the way they might want or the way that might be theoretically efficient. I think cost of anarchy is an extremely good way to put it. And there's no, sometimes I have a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction when people are like, well, let's just turn it right over to governments on day one. It's like, how do you think that's going to work, my man? Like (laughs) just, just open it up to something perfectly done. Yeah. Um, Good luck with that. But at the same time, I also see. Price of anarchy is the term I meant to use. Yes. Price of anarchy. Um, Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a good concept to keep in mind. All right. Last thing we'll close on. We, you and I are going to touch a little bit. We're going to be mostly talking about this within the context of sort of spot uh, exchanges, but we're also going to talk a little bit about on-chain derivatives. So perps and options uh, this season. And I would, maybe just like we could, I'd love to get your thoughts on how you see the market structure playing out. Obviously, if we look to TradFi as an example, or even 
uh, CFI within crypto, already the the market for futures and op- or futures and options has exceeded um, spot volume. So um, just kind of walk us through, like, how do you think about that market playing out on chain? Do you think the mix of different derivatives is going to be relatively similar, or what are your thoughts on on chain options in general? Yeah, so I think it's it's something I've thought a lot about, and don't I don't feel like I have a, I have a really firm um, theory on. Um, some observations. So one is, I think you do see, say, in in equity markets, you see like retail usage of options. But um, I think that, that might be almost entirely because uh, they don't have perps. And for, for various historical and regulatory reasons, we don't have uh, uh, perpetual swaps in U.S., especially like U.S. equities. So uh, and you don't have you don't generally have futures in U.S. equities either, and so the the main way to trade with leverage um, is using on on equities uh, for retail to trade leverage uh, on equities is options. And I think right. in it's it's sort of doesn't really make sense. And you saw like a lot of people you know with GameStop or whatever like getting into options trading with with equities, um, and it has all these weird properties. You're buying a lot of stuff. Um, uh, Vega or whatever that you actually maybe don't have use for or don't really want if you're actually just looking for leverage. Um, and so uh, I do think like it's kind of a it's a weird historical artifact um, that that uh, equities that retail options trading is a thing at all. Um, and so I so I'm I'm not that surprised it hasn't taken off as much as perps have in uh, in crypto in, in CFI crypto trading in part just because yeah like, I, I think for retail like perps kind of make more sense as a product to me. Um, that said, you know, I think, uh, there are a lot of things that options are used for and, and, and useful for, for professional traders. And so I do think there'll be, there'll, there will still be a professional, um, options market, but I, in, in crypto and, and potentially on chain long-term as for what makes sense on chain now, um, in current on chain environments, uh, leverage, leverage is dangerous, right? Because, um, I think primarily because of liquidation, um, is that if you're if you have these these like highly levered positions, um, you might actually end up getting uh, getting liquidated. You know, the, the position may end up being uh, insolvent. Now, there are some incredibly high profile examples of centralized uh, uh, perp exchanges um, having a similar problem, made worse <laughs> by the fact that they do not have transparent on chain collateral. And so, I yeah. wonder if actually the the uh, the upside of putting things on chain may well end up uh, uh, outweighing the downsides, but I also think we're going to get better in terms of uh, just what's what's what can be enabled on chain. Right, like latency is going to get lower long term. Throughput is going to get higher. Cost these costs of doing things on chain, and you may, with some amount of privacy, be able to um, to have perps be a little a little more practical on chain. But um, but yeah, I, so I, I don't see a reason why perps couldn't be couldn't be a big thing on chain. I also think I, I want to talk a little about. Um, uh, Squeeth, which is this interesting product that um, that we worked hmm. on with with a portfolio company called Open, um, where Squeeth, in some sense, is a I, I think it's a very cool way to get convexity to get this this product. Um, uh, one of the things that options provide, um, but in a more professional without the expirations, without without some of the properties that that options have. Um, and hmm. the way Squeeth works is that it always it's a it's like a perpetual that always trades at the price of um, of ETH squared, and so what that means is that like when ETH moves by a dollar, it always moves by two dollars basically, um, mm. and so it gives it gives you kind of this like two x levered exposure to ETH, but that continues to remain two x levered um, as the price uh, of ETH goes up or down, which is which is a beneficial property um, called convexity. But I think like it's it's a really interesting product. It's one that, as far as I know, doesn't really exist in traditional finance, and it's one that was invented because you get a lot more innovation in crypto because of um, uh, you have this this permissionless environment to to, to figure out these things. Um, 
but you know, it's one that I'm I'm not you know, Squeef, uh, I'm not really sure whether uh, whether it will make sense long term on chain. Um, but it's it's one example of like we might see weird things to happen. I think this happened with perpetual swaps. Where perpetual swaps were invented not not in DeFi, but in but in centralized crypto trading in a way that it hadn't really existed as a product in um, uh, in any other in other market before. Um, I think in part because like you had just you know companies like Bitmex innovating on um, on inventing these new these new things kind of outside of the regulatory um, environment where people would giving allowing allowing people to have more creativity in what they in what they meant. Yeah, actually, uh, perps, uh, although they were first popularized in crypto, they're actually they they existed outside of crypto before. They were first proposed by Robert Schiller in uh, in the nineties. I'm pretty that sure that is so interesting. That is news to me. Um, yeah, that's very cool. It just it just never really took off, and I can't I can't one hundred percent remember why. But so, the actually the old uncommon core uh, Hasu and and Suzu actually did a really good episode on the history of perps, and that was one of the takeaways is that it did exist in TradFi before as a structure, but it found product market fit in in crypto, and it, and it is interesting. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective, but there's probably some path dependency just in terms of financial products that exist in TradFi, and we're starting with something of a blank slate here. So maybe, uh, yeah, there will be different products that ultimately make sense. Although, man, people really do seem to like leverage. Doesn't really matter where it is. So yeah, you can probably expect uh, you know a rip roaring on chain derivatives market to to take place, but. Dan, we covered a ton of ground here. This is going to, I'm just so excited for this season. Um, we're going to get into some very in the weeds topics. I hope to talk about some like very interesting sort of deck strategy. Uh, and maybe we can reason a little bit about the market structure moving forward and, and get into the weeds and should be a ton of fun. Absolutely. I'm really, I'm really excited for it. All right. To tease our first episode, we, uh, we're going to be getting deep on lever with two, uh, let's just say very qualified guests. So that'll be a ton of fun. And Dan, I'll see you next week. See you next week.